Thank you everyone for joining us today. We're here to discuss supply chain IT and cyber threats along with Alicia Lynch, VP CISO at SAIC, as well as David Hochhauser. Our beloved David is a CRO of Tel Aviv-based cybersecurity firm, Hub Security. Uh, we'll start our webinar today with a short introduction to our speakers as usual, and then I'm going to hand over the stage to David and Alicia for the presentations. At the end, we'll hold a short Q&A to wrap everything up. Um, joined now by Alicia Lynch and David Hochhauser. Hello. Hello, Alicia. Hey. How are you? Really good. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. We're glad you could be here with us. Um, Alicia, um, for those of you who don't know, is VP of um, C uh, CISO and NCISO, um, who brings over 30 years of experience within the Department of Defense, Defense Contracting Community, and the private sector. Uh, she retired as a colonel from the US Army in 2012, where she served as both an intelligence officer and a cyber security specialist um, as both a qualified intelligence professional and a cyber specialist. She served in every echelon from platoon to national while leading units from team size to commanding a brigade. Since 2012, she has held a number of commercial executive level positions focused on cybersecurity, most notably as deputy CISO of Accenture Federal Services, uh, VP of Enterprise Solutions at a cybersecurity startup and Director of Governance, Risk and Compliance at EAE Systems. Welcome, Alicia. We're so glad you could be here with us today. Thanks. We're, al We're also joined here by David Hochhauser, CRO of Hub Security. Welcome, David. Hello. I'm glad I could be here today. And um, I'll just I'll first hand over the stage to Alicia, who's uh, going to share with us thoughts, insights on the recent FireEye and SolarWinds breaches, um, the supply chain threats and vulnerabilities, and managing those risks. Um, and then we'll hear a bit from myself on the approach to protect against supply chain vulnerabilities and Absolution as an example. Um, so it's all it's all yours, Alicia, and I'll share the screen from here. So let me uh, turn your screen on. And you should be good to go. Okay, if everybody can see the slides, I think we're good to go. All right, so I just wanted to say thank everybody for um, you know participating today. And I want it to be a, more of an exchange. Um, if you could put your questions in the chat and somebody could let me know what the questions are, I could stop the flow and go ahead and, and chat about it because I really want to get to what is it that the audience wants to know uh, about these particular topics. So it'd be great if you all did that. Um, so don't be don't be shy. Um, let's go on to the next slide, please. What's really relevant, and I was really excited about putting this together, is that these are topics that are so in the news right now, right? We're going to talk a little bit about the fire, fire eye solar winds breach. And um, as a CISO, I'm in a lot of panels, I'm on a lot of roundtable discussions, a lot of webinars, and it, this is the most current topics we're talking about right now, as well as the supply chain, because it is such a risk to most companies, uh, to all companies, actually, it's really uh, a prevalent topic. So um, again, feel free to ask questions, and if you have anything that can add value to the, to the conversation, please do that. Next slide. So we're going to jump right in, and I'm 
I'm assuming most everyone's already heard about the SolarWinds breach, so I'm not going to insult everybody by explaining every single thing, but I do want to kind of level set it so that there, you know, some folks who aren't super technical or familiar with what exactly occurred can understand what happened. So um, SolarWinds is, it was a supply chain attack and what supply chain attacks seek to do is to damage organizations and they target not exactly the heart of the organizations, but they target their supply chain and, and vendors so that they can get a more easy access into a company. And that's what exactly happened with, with the, the solar winds breach. And I'm going to talk specifically about how the attack occurred, but it is so huge. It's been going on since, um, I have a timeline I'll show you. It's actually been going on since 2019, but it became relevant to the public in around you know the middle of December. And we've been watching on a weekly basis as, as more and more data about this breach has started to unfold. The actual SolarWinds company is a company that um, provides a capability to, to help you with monitoring your network. So it's a, it's a super important capability. All companies do monitor their networks. And it's, it's really important because SolarWinds has such an expansive view of an of an organization, it can see everything inside, you know, inside the network and enterprise environment. So it's a super, it was a super huge feat for the APT to, to get into SolarWinds. And it was, uh, it, it was like, a, it was a big win for the, for the APT, let me tell you. So they're considering this breach actually is one of probably the most consequential ones that we've seen in our history here in the United States, because of all the, all the organizations that they were able to attack with it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. But the um, the SolarWinds Orion product is the one that we're specifically uh, talking about was the one that had the malware uh, embedded in that. And those who put, you could be using SolarWinds right now, but you might not be on the version that was um, impacted by that. So it's, it's, um, it's good for you to know which version that you're on and which one actually was impacted for this discussion. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, um, so how it was actually discovered at just as SolarWinds was releasing information that they had been breached, um, FireEye, who the CEO is Kevin Mandia, he almost announced simultaneously. And how um, FireEye, I'll get into a little bit more about how FireEye um, determined that they had actually been breached. But um, what happened was, a sunburst, a, a malware called sunburst was dropped onto um, into a payload and FireEye was impacted by it and it, it was able to gain entry to, uh, in particular, to FireEye. There are, since the first one dropped, which was sunburst, over the last two or three weeks, it's been it's come out that there's also an additional malware called Supernova, which is not necessarily linked to the APT that did do the sunburst, but uh, both are, are um, evidence that both are there. And then there's another one called Sunspot as well. So it's actually a third malware that's been detected and it's a, it's a backdoor for um, moving once the APT is inside the environment to move lateral across the organization. Let's go to next slide. Okay, so who who actually did this? There's been a lot of discussion. Um, it was definitely a nation state actor. And when it is a nation state actor, we use the term APT, which is advanced persistent threat. There has been tons of uh, reporting on the fact that they do believe it to be APT29, which is Cozy Bear, which is actually a Russian, it's a Russian uh, foreign intelligence, it is the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, and it has been, been linked to them as well. And the the uh, SVR 
has been responsible for uh, notable attacks on the Pentagon in 2015, as well as the Democratic National um, Committee in 2016. There is another APT-28, which is um, actual, another Russian um, bad actor, and it's related to the GRC, which is more their military arm. And it has a lot of common targets with APT. So there's not, there's not, they're not for sure exactly if they were involved in this as well. So there is um, Solar Winds got compromised through its vendor, and they're reporting that it is it's their vendor, and that's called JetBrains. And for a lot of you, um, you may know what JetBrains is, but if you don't, it's it's a development tool, and it's a pretty um, it's a pretty revealing attack that's occurred because uh, JetBrains is a company that. A lot of companies that do software development use these products, and the particular product at, at JetBrains was, in fact, um, Team City, which is their uh, their collaboration tool that a lot of developers use for a lot of different um, languages and such. So that's a. It's noted as uh, I've got a um, a quote here from the co-founder of CrowdStrike, and he says that. Compromising and introducing a backdoor into a build environment such as Team City is the holy grail of a supply chain attack. So that's actually what occurred here. Is you, if you get into the actual code of uh, a product and you're embedded in there, it's hard to detect that you're in there as malware and as malicious code, and you go unnoticed, which is what happened with this attack. Next slide, please. Okay, so it looks like we have a question. Okay, so uh, answering the question, can you define what you mean by supply chain? Okay, so I mean, I'm not the Webster's Dictionary definition giver here, but I'll, I'll just say that for any company, who, whatever products that you're using in your environment, so for example, you know, Microsoft, Nessus, Splunk, or any big tools like that, that could, would be considered part of your supply chain, as well as vendors that you use, your, what's called your downstream supply chain to help you facilitate doing any work that you have to do or any managed services that they that companies do for you. That's what I would consider supply chain. So if anybody has a better explanation, it's just about anybody that you use, anybody's products that you use or services that you use that are not your own would be considered your supply chain. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good point. If you're dealing outside of IT, the supply chain is different. Yeah, definitely. But I, I would imagine that it's, it's. I don't know, to get into philosophical discussion, but I would say that it's anybody, any company that's providing you any type of service or product that you don't control anything in their environment and they provide you services or products. Okay. Um, all right, so why why did this happen, right? So it wasn't just a, it wasn't a, we just happened upon it. This was a very, you know, well thought out, well executed, I would call it semi-covert attack. Um, in general, adversaries like the uh, Russian FSR, they look to get information from other countries like the United States and other Western countries to see what kind of decisions are being made by our policymakers and our decision makers so that they can get a little bit ahead of what's going on in worldwide politics. So there's a lot around that type of activity that goes on all the time. 
Um, this, these particular actors aren't there. They're not doing this for money and they're not doing it to damage anything. They're just truly trying to gain intelligence from this. Um, what's really super important about the fact that we're going to, we're highlighting the FireEye breach here is that FireEye is a big security company. Kevin Mandy is, is well-known, uh, well-respected in the cybersecurity uh, community. And he has a lot of government customers, consumers, defense companies, federal organizations, large, big companies. And his company, in, in essence, kind of in a nutshell, you know, actually goes into big companies and organizations and they take a look at their cyber posture. They look at all their vulnerabilities. They map it all out. And they identify what are points of entry, what vulnerabilities do they have, what gaps do they have, how do they shore that up. So he has in his uh, company huge databases of you know very sensitive data on a lot of uh, very very sensitive customers and that's probably why I mean it hasn't definitively been said but it's probably why FireEye was one of the first you know companies that were actually attacked and breached was to get that information so then they can see where are vulnerabilities within these other organizations that they've attacked and see if any of them are something that they would want to target and then it just makes it easier for them to target you know defense companies defense organizations and federal organizations and others. So next slide. Okay, so this is a timeline. Don't want to talk about every single thing that happened, but I did want to note here that it actually started in September of 2019. Um, they actually put the Sunburst code and deployed it in uh, February of 20. And they did this very stealthily uh, like I said, quietly, covertly, they got into the actual uh, SolarWinds DLL, which is considered, it's called their dynamic link library. So they actually got into SolarWinds, got into their code library, uh, embedded the malicious uh, code inside the code. So it looked like when it was packaged up, it looked like it was coming from SolarWinds. So there was no way that companies could see that they there was actually, you know, malware and malicious code inside of that that package. And what happened is um, when uh, companies dropped the SolarWinds update into their into their environment, they actually loaded in the code without knowing it. There was no way to detect it. And then you can see there, if you want to know the details of all this, I'll provide this back to, um, to all of you if you would like a copy of it. So no need to like jot all this down or anything. But in um, January, uh, 5th, we discovered uh, the additional supernova malware. And then in, um, uh, let's see, the 11th, we discovered uh, the sunspot was released um, to the into the wild so that we knew about that as well. So, okay, next slide. All right, so where did it impact or and who did it impact the SEC? And I'm getting all this stuff off of everything I'm telling you, nothing's classified. It's all in open source and this is off of the SEC's website, but there was probably 18,000 um, customers of SolarWinds that were impacted. But the number that I have there is, is, is fluctuating between 240 and 250 of actual known um, announced victims. And so the, the victims that I have here is the United States Department Department of State, Treasury, Homeland Security, all these, and, and again, these were all pub this is all public knowledge. There's nothing classified about anything like this, but it is it is very this is what makes this um, breach so impactful to to everyone is look at these organizations that were impacted by this breach. It was very it was a very successful attack. Next slide. All right, and I'll go on to the next question. If many companies 
companies use the JetBrains tools their way to audit and scan their current environments to determine that there's been a breach as soon as possible if they use JetBrains. Um, yeah, so I'm not a, you know, I, I don't know exactly if you would be able to scan to tell it, but if you are using the JetBrains product, I would definitely get a third-party vendor to take a look at it to see if you, in fact, have been impacted. It's hard to say. They haven't released a lot of information about it if they only uh, impacted certain companies or if, if everything was impacted. So I don't really have a good answer there, and it's really hard to tell because of the way that they, they got in. So um, I, would, I would suggest if you are using JetBrains that you would have a third-party scanning company scan it for you and see if there's anything that they can find that doesn't look, look legit. Okay. All right. So here's what to do if um, I'm kind of trying to stay on, on track here. Sorry about that. But, you know, here's some things. This is not everything that you can do. What I wanted to do was just give you one slide that you could take away and um, look look on locations. Just Google this, like go to Microsoft FireEye or, or CISA. There's tons of technical reports that's already been dropped on their sites about what it is that you technically should do. But some actions that you should take immediately is um, if you do have the SolarWinds version that's been impacted, you obviously need to you know disconnect from the internet. You need to, if you have the impacted version, you need to just you have to blow it all away and you have to read greenfield and start over with the new um the new patched version of solar winds if you if you're going to stick with that product and then um, obviously there's things you can do like make sure that you uh reset all the passwords in your environment around that around the product uh you could do it against all everything in your environment actually would be a good thing to do because a, a lot of um Companies probably were impacted by the malware, but they did not exploit companies unless there was something that they wanted to get out of it. And I would say that, you know, the larger departments that they have attacked and, and successfully gotten into and some of the bigger companies that have been compromised as well, they probably got, were, they're moving laterally in those environments, most likely trying to gain information. But, you know, some of us, just because you use the product doesn't necessarily mean that you are actually, you know, exploited by the, uh, by the breach. But um, just all kinds of reminders here and, uh, you know, apply least privilege, multi-factor authentication definitely helps um, changing passwords and, and those type of things. So uh, lots more technical information, and I can provide it as well if you have issues with uh, finding this information yourself. Let's go to the next slide. So kind of just to wrap up this, um, the SolarWinds breach, um, talking a little bit about a quote here from the SolarWinds CEO. Now, this CEO, Sadukar, just came in a couple of days before the, they announced the breach. So he's brand spanking new. This guy's from a, from a security company background. And so he's bringing in a new you know, set of eyes on what's going on here. The, the, the CEO that this breach happened under had been uh, new to SolarWinds a couple of years ago, and he's got a financial background and he was brought in to obviously try to gain market share and, you know, raise their, raise their revenue. And uh, in doing so, you know, guys come in like that and they start cutting other things. And it was very evident, sort of become pretty evident that there was, they were taking some cuts across the board in security. And so, 
you know, we could probably attribute a lot of what happened to, you know, cutting of security and practices and things in the environment. But one of the things that the new CEO said is that our concern is that right now similar processes may exist in software development environments at other companies throughout the world. I'd be saying that too. I don't want to make it look like it's only my company that this is happening to. So that's, and it's probably a true statement as well. But the part that I like that he said is that severity and complexity of this attack has taught us that more effectively combating similar attacks in the future will require an industry-wide approach as well as public-private partnerships that leverage the skills, insight, knowledge, and resources of all constituents. So that's absolutely a true statement. And uh, we're not going to solve, you know, the world's problems right now with the solar winds breach, but it's definitely going to take, you know, the industry, you know, getting involved and policing itself and a lot of everybody involved in it, you know, just raising the standards up in the cyber hygiene, you know, make sure you're doing DevSecOps and, and closing off all the vulnerable entries so that, you know, things like that can't happen. So next slide. Now we're going to roll into talking about um, what we just talked about there was really one of the worst situations of a supply chain attack that we've seen, like I said, in a long, long time. And that was very severe. A lot of attacks, you know, most companies get attacked their supply chain gets attacked on a daily basis through other means. But what makes supply chain threats, you know, very unique, not that the threats are different, but harder to, to deal with is a couple of things here that we're going to talk about. And the first thing is, is that third-party vendors, suppliers, um, subs, you know, there's all different kinds of names for them. What makes it difficult is that they, they are what I call the soft underbelly of a, of a, of a large company. So um, instead of going for you know, attacking, you know, a large company, say Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, or, you know, some of these larger companies that have a ton of security and good practices in place, um, the, their supply chain gets attacked because it's it's easier to break into the smaller providers. And there's been, you know, lots of examples, uh, for example, um, like uh, everybody knows Elon Musk, uh, you know, SpaceX and and Tesla, you know, it's probably pretty difficult to get into his environment, but all you need to do is go to one of his subcontractors, Visser Precision, which is already, it's a, this is a public knowledge thing, you know, they were, uh, the the supplier, Visser Precision was, um, was breached and, you know, data from from SpaceX, from Tesla, from Lockheed Martin and other big vendors who use this particular sub, their data was was um, breached as well. That was a particular, it was a ransomware attack, attack in particular, but the data was uh, easily taken from that sub. So again, that's a lot of the reasons why the supply chains are the most riskiest uh, places for, for large companies. Also too, is getting transparency into um, the supply chain is, is very difficult. And for reasons that's very understandable, um, a lot of companies have very unique uh, solutions or products and they don't want any they don't want anybody to have visibility in there because of their IP and you know that's what gives them their competitive advantage and they don't want to lose any competitive advantage so you, sometimes you have a hard time getting information out of companies like that um, obviously you know releasing proprietary information to a company who they don't know you know if you're if they're your supplier they don't know how your security is either so they don't want to release their information to you so that's that's understandable and there's other things too sometimes that they give you a look into your environment and you know a company doesn't think that their suppliers uh, cyber controls are to standard you know there might be some criticism there and they definitely don't want to see that so lots of reasons why they don't want to open the door and let you in there the other things are it's even if you identify 
that there is a problem. It's difficult to understand the scope of how things are going to go down when you don't have visibility into that environment. So it's hard to predict um, what's going to happen there. And um, there's lots of evidence of if there's an instance of something happening in one environment, it can cascade all the way down the supply chain or up the supply chain as well. And I could talk a little bit about that. Um, the supply chain is uh, the supply chain of the supply chain is virtually unknowable. Um, I can give an example of listening to some um, peers discuss around having. Uh, a customer, a government customer, and they had to build uh, a very, the, a box, let's say a box, and it was supposed to be made in the United States only. So the government gives the contract to the primary contractor and says, hey, here's your contract, and we want you to build this box, and it needs to be made inside the United States. So they go and they get a vendor that helps them make it, and they pass those clauses down, and they say, hey, you know, you need to build this for me and it needs to be made in the United States and we need this many of them. What happens is each supplier has a supplier and as it goes down, it can go two and three and four levels down. And eventually the, the clauses don't flow down, the contracts don't flow down, and then it ends up that the box is being made in China, right? So now the whole entire um, product development's been compromised and the 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 prime who's you know contracted with the government has not only lost the contract, they're probably going to lose a lot of money for all the money they've invested and the fact that they went against what the government told them to do. So there's lots of things like that that happen every day. And you all probably have, you know, tons of stories that you can tell as well. But it's super difficult to get visibility into your supply chain and to, you know, understand what's going on and to make sure that it's a safe it's a safe supply chain. So that's the unique problems that we deal with. And that's not all of them, but the, you know, there's tons more, but it's a good start. So let's go to the next slide. So now we've talked about how, how hard it is to, to manage your vendors and understand you know, how secure your supply chain is. And what I wanted to do was give you at least some ideas about things that you can do you know, for your supply chain to get, to get visibility of it and to manage the risk that you have in your supply chain. So the first thing, the first and foremost is always, you know, starting with um, ensuring that you have compliance and, and regulatory guidance and standards that you have within your company on how you manage your vendors, and then you flow that down, right? So you publish those policies, you get them to your suppliers and your vendors, you get them in your agreements, you get them in your contracts, so that everybody understands what, what the expectation is for them to secure, to secure their environment. Um, Every single contract's different, so I'm not talking. I'm talking, in, you know, in in great generalities, but making sure that you get as much into a contract to protect you, to give specific guidance to your vendors and to your suppliers is the is first and foremost. Um, a lot of people use the word crown jewels, and if you have crown jewel vendors that are the, you know, they are the center of gravity or the key to you delivering a product or a service, you really should get them under, you know, SLA service level agreements and um, OKR so that they can um, understand that they have to stick to specific guidance that you give them and or as they're delivering their products or services to you. It's a good thing to know, identify who your high risk vendors are. Um, that they could be high risk for many reasons. There's lots of criteria. It could be that they are a mom and pop organization that does engineering like to the greatest degree, but they're just a small company and they don't really have good secure practices. And 
you know, you, you consider them high risk and then you might give a little added attention to them by sending, if you're a large company, like a cyber assistance team to help them to secure the CAD documents or classified data or whatever it is that you're, you're giving them that they need to build products for you. And then um, the other thing is to obviously have a process or means for which, you know, verifying security practices and procedures, you know, within your supply chain. The second piece is adopting strong, scalable, repeatable processes. So, um, you know, again, depending upon the size of your company, but most, you know, small to mid-sized companies have, uh, you know, some sort of procurement process and you can um, make sure that that's a repeatable process and that you do things the same there and you push push into contracts um, specific guidance to them that you specifically want them to, you know, perform on. Um, Again, having processes for securely dealing with vendors, you know, having them come in through portals where you know their identity and you know who they say they are and that you're, they're using multi-factor authentication, things like that. And also, too, what's good to know is to develop, um, again, with some of your high-risk vendors or your crown jewel vendors. And if you could do it to all of them, it'd be great. A company like SAIC, we have 10,000 vendors. So it's really, you know, difficult to, to manage down to every specific one, but certainly prioritizing them and, de and, and determining which ones do you uh, really need rely on and need to know if they are having an incident and how do we communicate during an incident that they're having. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, so know which vendors are receiving controlled data. This is more from the defense, uh, defense space, but a lot of you are probably in companies where you might deal with HIPAA, PII, um, ITAR-QE, that's more defense type data. Um, and the fact is, is that if you're flowing that kind of data down to a vendor, you need to make sure that you're flowing down with them specific guidance around how to protect that data. And if there's government standards out there or frameworks, make sure that they're fam familiar with it. It's in the contract so that they do protect the data so that it doesn't so that you don't have a loss of data. Um, restricting access and authorization. If you have vendors coming into your environment or, or into your portals or some sort of supply portal or something like that, just making sure that you know they don't they don't all get to come in at the same level and do whatever they want. You really control and restrict the access to the level of data that they actually need, and that better helps you control the loss of data in your environment. And then interacting with your with the vendors uh, routinely, um, having them do self assessments, and again, if they are a priority for you, assessing them, if if it's allowable in the contract, and auditing, and also you know working with them and conducting training. And then the fourth way to help manage it is to employ adequate uh, threat detection and response. Um, and it depends on obviously the size of company that you have, but um, obviously for you know mid size or larger companies, if you're running your own a security operations center, or if you have it as a managed service, make sure that there's, you know, tools in place so that you have visibility and continuous monitoring of the network. And if you have, there's tools out there so that you can get some sort of identifiable data about your vendors. There's BitSite and other, you know, products like that where you can see what their secure, security score looks like. And um, there's things that you can do for, you know, uh, you know, if you have capabilities to, you know, look on the dark web as far as, you know, if you have key vendors that you're using, make sure that you're, you know, searching dark web for a release of data about any of the companies that you consider a key vendor. Um, 
creating crisis action plans and and executing those and doing tabletop exercises. Again, you know, mid-sized, larger companies do do those routinely so that when you do have an incident, your teams know how to respond and exactly what to do. Um, there's, uh, and a lot of them involve vendors. So, you know, I'll just give you an example of if, um, if you have employees whose accounts have been compromised on an ADP site or something like that, it's a, it's a payroll site. And, um, in order to, you know, stop the bad actors from, you know, changing people's ACH payments and things like that, you have to work with vendors. And so you have to have, um, you know, plans and exercises on how to do that. So they go smoothly at, if something happens, uh, you know, real world. And then, you know, conducting again, another process is conducting vendor risk assessments to see who is, um, what is their postures and where is their risk in particular, and then if it's a crown jewel or high risk uh, uh, supplier that you use, you help them shore it up so that you can keep your supply chain as secure as possible. So that was kind of fast and furious, and that's certainly not everything that um, that can be done. But um, I did try to spend a lot of time putting together, you know, some thoughts about uh, different things that you can do. And I think that these two slides about managing risk, you could certainly tear these out and make sure that your company is doing as many of these things as you can to make sure that you're improving the, the, the ability to manage the risk of your supply chain. Let's go to the next slide. And this is just, um, again, another takeaway for anybody here who has a company that you might be responding to any supply chain threat and incident. Some of the things that you do, like I talked about, is you implement a communication plan. And then at the time that you need to use it, you, you activate the communication plan. You make sure that you get all the you know, key people involved. It's always usually your cyber, you know, your cyber team and any of the business that it's impacted. If it's a financial function that's been impacted by it and any sort of uh, third-party providers, suppliers, like I mentioned, ADP, or it could be you name it, any company that you, that's helping you do your finances and making sure that all these people can get into the same room on the same call so that we can start to, you know, hash out what has gone on with the incident. And, and basically the bottom line is you're trying to come to understanding of what's happened, how do you remediate it, and how do you shorten the duration of the, of the disruption so that you can return to normal operations as soon as possible. And then the last slide, I just thrown it in there for um, a lot of, you know, mid-sized to larger companies use. Uh, they leverage the intelligence cycle, uh, and I actually at SAIC we do the le we do leverage the intelligence cycle and use a threat-informed defense model. So it helps us to stay on top of, you know, what's going on in our environment and with our suppliers, those that we have the connection with to get the data from, and um, makes for a easier way to handle situations if you already have good processes in place. I don't know if I've missed any questions in the chat. Yeah, I think we've got a response from Kevin um, regarding this fourth malware that was found by Semantic um, called Raindrop. Oh, Raindrop, Raindrop, yeah. Um, actually, I'm going off of really bad memory here. I thought Raindrop was uh, a malware that they found, but it's actually is used to move laterally within an environment. I don't know. I'm kind of guessing right there, but I'd have to, I'd have to check it out and find out. And if anybody's on this call who knows exactly what it is, you could 
speak up to or put it in the chat. Any other questions? Are people allowed to talk? No, I don't believe so. Uh, but um, if we're done with the presentation, we can move to the Q&A. Um, I think David, did you want to, to also um, add some of your thoughts as well? Yeah, I was gonna go through uh, just a couple of brief things, take a few minutes and go through a couple of brief things. And then um, that's fine afterwards. Um, Alicia, if there's any questions as people come through, then we could come back to Q&A. Okay and go through from that perspective. So um, anyway, thanks. I thought I really enjoyed that. I forgot to sometimes move the slides forward because I was actually listening very carefully to what you were saying and learned a lot from it. So um, I found that very enjoyable. Um, and again, as a reminder, we'll have some Q&A at the end. Um, just one caveat, I had a little bit of oral surgery yesterday. I have like 15 stitches in my mouth right now. So if it's a little difficult to understand me, um, I'm I'll try my best, hopefully, and hopefully I don't uh, drool a little bit afterwards. So let me just go through a couple of things. Um, you know, in general, just from our perspective, um, from our perspective, we have a trust problem. Um, and from multiple uh, perspectives, there's obviously, obviously the risk, uh, recent attack and Alicia's discussion on the whole supply chain is, is a massive exposure. There's also the whole concept, the insider threats is kind of a well-known um, major cause of exposure. Um, it's generally recognized as well that building a parameter and trusting people inside a secure perimeter um, is not actually a, a valid defense um, as secure. And this actually gets behind kind of a main concept behind what we look at as a zero trust approach. Um, Fourth, also, even the regulations and standards, they're kind of there to provide some sense of comfort and they help provide some minimum set of security requirements, but by themselves, they do not uh, necessarily mean you are secure. So to kind of be uh, cautious about that. Um, and in general, um, from a technical perspective, we're finding a lot of the protection and privacy of the sensitive information and applications they're based on very old, you know, designs. And every time there's a new threat, we kind of add or we substitute or we integrate patches into these layers of protection that we've put in place. Um, it becomes very cumbersome, um, obviously very costly. And we think that fundamentally a new approach, uh, somewhat flawed in a new approach we're gonna to need to really protect at least the most sensitive data and applications. Um, or, you know, we, we have a broad environment, but for the most sensitive ones, um, we look at a new approach. And so, you know, we want to, I want to show you an approach of how we think we protect against um, such threats. And one concept is a concept called zero trust um, that I think serves to protect against a lot of these threats, or at least helps uh, protect against a lot of them. And at its core, it, it calls for micro perimeters. Uh, basically, to add that it, they're um, they're self-contained, highly secure uh, micro perimeter, and the idea is literally trust no one or nothing outside of that environment. Um, and depending how it's implemented, um, we do believe it'll help protect the most sensitive applications and data against threats, including things like supply chain attacks. Um, assuming some of the other preventions, obviously assessing your, your vendors and doing all that is critical, but assuming something gets by now, what's your defense? Um, 
And we think its most critical element now is actually based on an approach, a new approach that's called confidential computing. So let me briefly explain what we see as, you know, as confidential computing. Um, and for those who don't know, it's, it's a new approach. And to us, it's actually the, the next critical step in zero trust. Um, as you know, there are three pillars of, of data security, right? Just protecting the data at rest, um, in transit, and then in use. And at rest and in transit has been the traditional focus of security for quite some time. Um, especially even the applications, they're hackable while they're being used as well. And protecting the data as well as the applications while in use, though, is, is really tough because you have applications that obviously need to get to the data in the clear in order to do the computation. Now, really reading the definition from the slide, um, as you go from the slide, you'll see confidential computing. It's a new approach that literally isolates the data, the function computing environment during, during processing. So, and it's accessible only to authorized code and invisible literally to anything or everyone else. Um, the good news is there are practical solutions beginning to emerge for this. And one of those approaches, and of course, I mean, I think the best one is, is Hub's platform that has confidential computing um, at its core. And just um, one, one last thing, kind of a brief description around this. And we assume everything is hackable outside our environment. So whether directly from insider threats or supply chain attacks, everything is hackable. So uh, Hub's confidential computing platform is in essence um, its own extremely protected micro perimeter. It protects everything um, regardless of what is going on outside of it and it trusts no one, not even those using it actually or running it. So this platform, it's your, your primary element of defense strategy for most of your really sensitive and uh, information and applications. So take it, there's kind of four major levels, right? It, it protects the data coming into the box. It protects everything happening in the box, um, protects, the, protects those who are accessing what's in the box, and and protects the data at rest. And you know how it does that is if you look at the data coming into the box, it's an extremely secure environment that protects the keys that are securing the network. And they're literally protected in a FIPS level four compatible box or what's called a hardware security module. On top of that, we built our own um, hardware firewall that protects the perimeter of that box by checking all the messages um, that are coming inbound um, and actually even checks the outbound messages. So if something somehow does and there's something abnormal in there, we start to check if there's something, some abnormal message even going outside of our environment. Okay, protecting everything in the box, um, we handle that in secure hardware enclaves. So the application, um, the data, the logs, the keys, et cetera, are all inside secure enclaves. And unless explicitly granted permission, even multiple parties that are working on a common project cannot access or view each other's information or even the application. And actually not even the system administrator can get to the data or the application as well. 
Um, as far as protecting access to the box, um, we use the zero trust access control or authorization uh, concept. And so there's the role-based access and the policies are, are actually defined and protected in their own secure enclave within that box. So again, everything is, is secured inside its own enclave in the box. And we have what we consider the ultimate authenticator for somebody's identity. Um, we have a handheld mini HSM that has its own display. So one, it ensures through a secure channel that you were the only authorized person. And two, whatever you see on that display is actually what is getting signed. And you could kind of think of it as two-factor authentication on, on steroids. It literally takes it to another level and it's a pure hardware-based um, level three and level defined secure access for identity and for ensuring what's getting signed. Um, and finally, to protect the data at rest, um, you can actually um, protect it in the secure enclave. You can protect the data as well in its own secure enclave within the same box. Um, and if necessary, we can actually also protect an external database um, as well. So those are really, um, kind of the key things behind that. And I just want to get across and, and literally as summarized as mentioned, um, it literally trusts no one outside of what it can control, um, which is in essence what zero trust is. And this takes it to an extreme form. Okay, so that's kind of, I just want to get a little bit in there what Hub Security's folks on and how, how we try to help prevent some of these things. That's kind of the quick brief approach. And with that, um, I kind of hand it back to Shatterney to pick up and see if there are any questions. Thank you, David. Thank you. That was uh, really interesting. And thank you, Alicia, as well, for your presentation. Um, these discussions are not only fascinating, but relevant and today, I think more than ever, especially after um, what we've seen with the SolarWinds attack um, and the damage that it uh, potentially has caused. Um, so I'm so glad that we got the time to uh, to cover them today. And um, while all of them require a bit of a deeper discussion, we're, we're grateful that we had the time that we had. Um, and I'd like to take the opportunity now just to open up the floor to our attendees. If you have any questions, um, you can drop them in the Q&A section um, below. And um, I'm just gonna start off with my first one. Uh, this is for Alicia. Um, what type of attack is the most prevalent you have experienced on your supply chain? And what have you done to mitigate, mitigate it from happening again? Excuse me. Okay, so yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, what we typically see in our, you know, downstream supply chain is a lot of um, smaller companies get compromised in their email. They, you know, the, the APT gets into their environment and get, gains access to employees' email and they can see, you know, what's going on in the employee's email and they know which uh, big companies that they are supplying stuff to. And so then they send emails from the company. So when it comes into a company like SAIC, it's coming from a legitimate trusted, you know, vendor and it's coming from like Susie Smith's email, who's emails us all the time, and they're asking, you know, to pay a PO. And so we see these, this is routinely, like, you know, um, companies lose 
millions and millions of dollars a year to paying false POs. So that's probably what we deal with the most. And we have, we see it so often. We we do special training for our, you know, financial and procurement departments around um, how to identify the characteristics of that. Uh, we also do a lot of, you know, very um, targeted phishing training on our on those employees that work in that environment. And we also have some manual, what we call, you know, air gap processes where everything isn't automated. So for example, a lot of times those emails will come in from those small vendor companies and they'll say, oh, we've changed our banking information, you know, send us, you know, pay our PO and pay it here. So we have a process that we immediately put what I call an air breather in the process. So if somebody actually calls that company to a POC to verify that they've in fact changed their data and nine times out of 10, they haven't. So I'd say that's what we see, you know, most prevalently. Um, There have been, uh, you know, several suppliers in our supply chain that have been, you know, had ransomware attacks happen and it's taken down their whole environment. And we've, you know, um, given some assistance on remediation, you know, if it's within the means for us to do that. And, uh, you know, nothing, to me, those are just ordinary things, and I'd say those are the two two major ones there. Good question, though. Yeah, thanks, Alicia. Well, I did rejoin. My system crashed. Of course, great timing. Um, sorry about that. Yeah, you were frozen for some time there, um, but you you got uh, you joined us right in time. I have a question here for you um, from one of our attendees. In order to protect um, an application and its data, do you need to develop the app? Um, inside this the CC environment or do any special coding of any kind. Ah, okay. And I'm not sure uh, to build off of what I said because I don't know how much of it came through. No, we, um, um, we definitely, we heard, we heard everything. It was just your image that was frozen. Oh, okay. It was just the image. That's fine. You didn't miss all that much. Um, so from that perspective, you saw that it's it's a the whole platform, it's a secure platform. And the concept is you build the security model and you run everything inside of it. Um, however, to make it efficient, we're actually running your exact, whether you're running anything on a standard uh, Linux environment, or in most cases, uh, very often it's used on GPUs to use to for machine learning. And so you can actually develop almost all of it literally on any box, similar box outside, and we recreate the same environment inside. Once we move it inside our box, now it becomes, it has our security model all around it and it's actually operating inside of there. So for the most part, you can actually develop and run things um, outside in, in, in standard environments, and then we'll move it in. And that that's when it starts getting protected by being in a secure enclave, signing. And we'll, before we move it in, obviously we'll digitally sign it, make sure no one can touch it and put a range of protection around it as well. Um, so you're not limited to necessarily just developing on the box, but it is once you want to pull in the security around it, that's when you start, that's when you deploy it into our platform. Great, thank you, David. Um, and I've got, I think a final one here for you, Alicia. Uh, what do you think we can do to prevent another solar winds type of attack from happening in the future? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's a really hmm. difficult question. Um, hmm. huh, so um, I've had a question similar to that on some recent panels and there's, you know, all kinds of ideas that get thrown out there. But the one that I like to go with is, um, 
you know, putting out policies, and this is for, you know, obviously the United States, but other countries could do it as well. But I think that, you know, we need some policies for our um, product, you know, application providers and, and, and product providers that follow a kind of a Sarbanes-Oxley-esque, you know, requirement to where they have to deploy certain cyber hygiene uh, in their environment and they have to do, if they're a product application company, that they do secure, you know, development operations as they as they produce their products and things like that. So something like that, I think that, you know, large agencies, three-letter agencies in the United States, they do, they can scan code and tear it apart and they have huge labs and lots of resources to invest in it. And they, you know, can take their time with it, but, you know, more even, you know, regular commercial companies and defense companies really, really can't do that. But as much as possible, you know, making sure that you are, you know, scanning the code and the, and the patches and making sure that they're clean before you deploy them to your environment. And I think with this particular attack, with uh, the solar winds attack, they actually made it to where the code wouldn't even activate for over a couple of weeks because, you know, some people stuff sets in their labs for a week or two weeks. And then if the act, if it activated, it would be caught. So they set it to activate later than a couple of weeks. So, you know, they're getting more sophisticated than that. So there, you know, there's like policies, and practices, best practices that you could start to put in place. Um, and I think more importantly is, you know, the whole world, all the product companies need to just start doing some, you know, self-policing, um, you know, coming from the military, like basically like a code of conduct of the industry where you use the best practices and most safe and secure practices as possible and making sure that you're, you know, um, that your cyber hygiene is up to speed. And I know that costs a lot of money and a lot of resources, but it's really, you know, the simple things are the ones that these, you know, bad actors are exploiting. So I think that's, um, it's a lot to, lot to take on right there, but, you know, I, and again, we all got to work together, right. And, and try to make us as secure as possible. Yeah, definitely. And we're seeing that mm -hmm. with some, um, some new regulations uh, that are starting to come out. Um, yeah. And, and, to add a bit of, completely makes sense. And I mean, one, as we know, there's nothing that's 100%. You know, it's a matter of mitigating and, and layers. And I agree completely with what Alicia said. You know, it's almost layer one is get the policies and procedures and, and, and check around that for certain. Um, the second layer is start to protect and harden your own system as much as, as, much as you can and protect it all, mm -hmm. you know, uh, from where you go. Um, and, and just, Proposal from host perspective, we come in layer three for your most sensitive stuff and all. You have to take the cost risk analysis and put it even that in a more secure environment and save your most sensitive stuff. And you put even more security around it and put a more secure environment. But it's all a matter of, you know, you've got to keep adding layers of defense and try to stay ahead. Well said, David. Well, um, I think we'll wrap it up with that. Thank you everyone for joining us today. And thank you to our speakers, David and Alicia. Uh, we hope that uh, you're all staying safe and healthy at home. We look forward to hosting many more discussions like these. We host them uh, weekly, bi-weekly. Um, so you can learn uh, more and keep up to date with Hub Security and on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Uh, we also have a weekly digest on Medium. You can check out. And if any of you would like to learn more about Alicia's work, um, you can find her on LinkedIn. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about SAIC, you can go to saic.com. Um, and we hope to see you uh, in 
our next uh, our next talk. Thank you so much, Alicia, once more, and thank you, David, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. And Great enjoy the rest of your day. You too.